Peter Cocking is the art director of uh, Douglas and McIntyre, publishing firm based in Vancouver, celebrating this year its 40th anniversary. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. We are doing a series on publishing houses and talking a bit about the history and some of the more important books that may have come out of the firm, either from an innovative standpoint or utilizing particular techniques, design techniques, or designers. I've been on staff uh, since 2002, so for 10 years. Before that, uh, I did a lot of freelancing for Dina uh, from about 1995 on. Uh, For a long time, I didn't have an art department. Um, it just had freelancers. In fact, I think going way back, um, Barbara Hodgson, who a lot of people have probably heard of, was art director here in, I guess, the 80s, maybe the early 90s. And then after she left, they, they didn't have any in-house design, you know, for, I don't know, 10, 12 years or something like that. It was all sort of freelancers. My office actually is aligned with the oldest sort of part of our company history. We started back in the, in the far corner and sort of trace through. So I, I stare at the spines of the books and I look up, but <laughs> a lot of them, I'd say, are, are before my time. You know, for a long time, it was kind of a, a catch-as-catch-can company. There was, you know, a small company, number one of people. But Scott often certainly talks about how it was sort of much more um, vibrant scene, I think, in terms of sort of game publishing back then. We didn't have some chapters dominating the market. We had a lot more interest, I think, people had in, in sort of reading their own stories. So... You know, even for a small company, it wouldn't be so unusual for them to to come up with something and to move, you know, 30,000, 40,000 copies, yeah. which nowadays, the rare times that happens, we're, we're just like over the moon, right? That, yeah, uh, well, 5,000 is 5,000 is, is, yeah, yeah. 5, is a perfect, is a, is a good number these days, yeah. Len Norris, who Vancouverites might know, it's a long time. Cartoonist. Sort of like mm-hmm. yeah. Johan's Gift to Christmas, it's like an adaptation sort of about, I think that story is Simon. It's actually an illustrated kids book. And this thing, the whole thing came together very quickly. I think it came out in the beginning of December. I mean, no one would ever release a Christmas book mm-hmm. in December. Yeah. And they immediately moved, I don't know, 40,000 copies before December was out. And, it just, and that was when primarily just in this market right here, right? But you could publish a book like that and get on sort of all the media outlets very quickly. You know, there was so much more interest in it. Now, you know, we compete with really internationally. We do a small bit of stuff that's local, but, but far less just because it's much harder to harness that market. We don't have the independence, we don't have the, the connection, really direct connection with the, the community. So, you know, to survive as a publisher, you really have to think of, like, at least, you know, can this make it internationally, hopefully into the United States, is there a foreign market for it, to resell the rights or something like that. That becomes such a part of the equation, much more than it, than it was, you know. You know, when I started, we would, we would be more likely to do local books than we, we are now. Right? That's a, kind of a rarity now. As I understand it, the first two books that came out of the press, one was BC Coastal Names. Yeah, which is still in print. I, I don't know what the total sales number is, has been on that over the years, but I know it's done you know, very well. And the other one is something about easy cooking. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that book too, which, uh, which is kind of funny because we still, of course, do cookbooks this day, but I think that was certainly, people know that the books you see in drugstores, companies coming, these really kind of cheap sort of cookbooks. Yeah. This is before they existed, but it's that kind of very instant somebody's home kind of recipes. But again, I think because back then, you know, that would have been much less common to have like a local cookbook. Those are two things that established, or that direction of the, the local cooking, which is still on. 
and certainly that you know BC Place and for a long time that and we still have a fair number of things that are tied to kind of native studies and not as often sort of tied to this this area and those still do quite well. I would imagine they pay the bills for some of the more exotic mm -hmm. stuff. You know, even to this day, cooking can you know can really bring in a lot of money when when it connects well. The, the books we've done with the Vicious restaurants have been you know phenomenal sellers. In the early days, then it may well have been more of a, a desire to understand the market and supply the market with content that, that they were devouring, mm -hmm. rather than going at it from another direction, which is we're going to produce the most beautiful books in the world. That probably kind of came about almost accidentally in a way. I know that uh, you know, Scott has always been interested in art and that kind of you know, led to sort of development of our kind of line of books, you know, gallery related sort of art books and things like that. But I don't know if they ever had a conscious plan in the early days in any particular way other than just sort of like let's keep this ball rolling, right, yeah. and let's chase what combination of what we're interested in and, and sort of what, what works and, and what happened. I know that um, you know, Scott has often said that we were, as a company, sort of out on the West Coast, you know, removed from the center of things in Canada, and certainly with smaller budgets in, in the earlier days, I mean, really right up to the last, oh, I don't know, less than 10 years, really, when we were rarely playing for the agent of book. You know, every now and then, now we're, we're very much in that kind of game. Sorry, what? Well, you know, the agent is like going for a bigger, you know, national sort of book, going after those kinds of, the kinds of things that also would be offered to, you know, and, and now, you know, we're, we very much participate in that, but we didn't used to for a long time. We didn't have the, the financial sort of wherewithal for a long time. And so the way that it evolved is if they didn't have sort of the, the money and also being out on the coast made more of a difference, you know, 30 years ago, 30 years now, 20 years ago. One thing they could control is they, they could, you know, hire who they thought were really good editors and they could hire, you know, good designers, right? They probably started with Barbara Hudson, really. I mean, I know Robert Baker did some things on freelance basis, but really just one thing Barbara came in as. That, that's something they could control. So, you know, if you don't have the money to outbid a multinational, what you can do is, you know, that you can take something that's a bit of, like, let's say, you know, hopefully it's a diamond in the rough and, and polish. That has long been sort of part of what, what we have done is sort of finding things that maybe a, a larger publisher would, would not take in a chance on them because more work was required. Because we, you know, certainly in the earlier days, couldn't afford to, to bid those great numbers and pay the huge advances. So if we put a little bit more money into, you know, editing or, or design, that was still less than what the big advance would be. And, you know, hopefully we could sort of turn that, that book into, you know, something. The J.P. and, you know, the Waste and Choice, the first novel, which is, I mean, more, this is more notable for editorial than, than design, but... And yet one of his, if not that, then one of his later books won a design. Well, the re actually, when we repackaged it, it would be, yeah, when Jessica Selden was my senior designer, when, when we redid a number of sort of our older fiction titles in like a smaller Penguin B, more accessible format, and I think the first two we did both won sort of awards which they had initially. Um, but that was sort of reflecting, yeah, the company's change and our interest in even when it's sort of an expensive package just to, you know, not treated cheaply to pay attention to the interior and, and so on, the typography. There was an example, again, of a book that my understanding needed initially to fear for the editorial shaping to sort of pull it together. So that, I think, that general approach probably led to the, you know, the valuing design and it being something that uh, we could do 
my hair weed didn't have to, you know, sort of outbid somebody for it. And, and you know, so they, before I started, you know, there was you know, Barbara George Lake Kunis, who I don't know yeah. if you know the name, and yeah. he's a very, very good designer, and not really practicing much anymore. He designed, he uh, teaches primarily in Montreal, he's married and moved back there, and uh, he's teaching the Seja. Him, uh, Mark Timmings, who's still still around, again, has done some really lovely, primarily the, the, the art, kind of the art book, art catalog, so his his field, like our gallery, uh, the National Gallery, and things like that, right? So that we still do a fair bit of that at one point. It was probably even more, but uh, a lot of the galleries don't necessarily always have the budget. So, you know, it'll still happen that the bag does quite a bit. The, the Eastern Gallery is less so on that scale. They haven't completely stopped, but, but they don't produce as many sort of large, elaborate Big shows, yeah. Yeah, as they, as they were at one point. But, you know, we're still, I mean, we've got some stuff going on now. Civilization and doing some stuff at the AGO last year. Those contracts still kind of keep, keep going. I'm trying to think who else was really kind of notable before my day. Val um, Spidell, people might have seen, never heard of her name. She did some award winning books again in the, in the 90s. Dean Allen, Bat Noir, maybe designed for a while. I think every, anybody who worked in publishing for a while in the 90s probably has a Dean Allen story. Was that? Oh, he's just, uh, he was a colorful. Guy. I would say he's probably a literally a genius, like one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, quit high school and just sort of did his own thing, but uh, kind of an autodidact in every shape and form. He left book design to um, develop a programming language that is essentially the basis of WordPress, a thing called Textile. He ran a, like an internet hosting company, which is now worth about $300 million. He has <laughs> significant shares in that and lives comfortably in the south of France now. So. Jessica Sullivan, as I mentioned before, a designer. I hired her right out of art school about 18 months later than that, middle of 2003. And so the two of us have sort of been the, the main two ever since, with a certain amount of freelance. What was it that you saw in Jessica? She was still to this day one of the arguably two or three best sort of students I ever had. I've been teaching Emily Carr for about a decade. And it's usually a kind of a combination. One of them is uh, just a, a real desire to, to do this. A love of, of not just design, but of the kind of design I think that relates sort of to, to book design and really just in, in typography and dealing with narrative and, and complex, more extended projects. A real interest in taking on a challenge and always getting better. And you know, like no matter how much you throw at them, they want more, right? Um, and a lot of them, even if they're good, they, they don't necessarily. And that's one of the things you, know, you look for is that. Uh, because if you know nothing about book design, you tend to think, well, it's the cover, and then that's it, right? Yeah. The cover's often the easy part, right? The inside, yeah. particularly if it's illustrated, is a complex job in many ways, in design and managerial, too. You've got to navigate all this, you're dealing with a, it's a big team, really. Well, and it's also, as I've heard it described, it's really a problem that's there to be solved. Sure. Yeah. I mean, not in a negative sense, but it's, as you say, a challenge to, to fit everything in in a way that is readable and uh, appealing. So one of the things you look for in someone young is that when they really have that, that desire to, to take on more, then that suggests that when they get to something like the book where there's, there's the complexity, there's always something new and you're always trying to manage these things that you're not going to shy away from. That. And I mean, you know, you know partly for, for here, of course, I look for somebody who I think their aesthetic to, goes to me too. I think it would work for the hives, and it relates to books. And the biggest thing really is: to, are, are you smart or do you read? There are lots of designers who are not really suited for books because they're not 
bookish. Not in, bookish, yeah, yeah, exactly. So you don't have to be necessarily reading the kinds of books we design as much as just you really love and, and love books because then you understand the form, you know? Like you can't mm -hmm. really design, I think, anything without uh, having an understanding of what is inherently crucial, critical to the form. So you, know, you need to know what makes a book tick without having to be explained to you. Okay. And what does make it tick, in short? I, I mean, it is really that that respect for the, for the reader on, on a, such a range of levels. The most straightforward thing is to make the text clear and, and readable. And often, um, the, the classic sort of um, dictum of Beatrice Ward, the idea of the crystal goblet, of making text sort of transparent, mm -hmm. that you can look through. That, that's often, you know, the appropriate, not always, sometimes, depending on the material, it, it's necessary to, to put more of a stamp on it to help kind of give it a cast or direct Somewhere. But but there is that idea, that straightforward idea of kind of making text a sense of transparency so people can can get to it. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? I mean, it, you want it to be invisible, mm. but on the other hand, you want it to, to have an impact on the reader yeah, somehow. Exactly. If if all it was was just sort of getting getting out of the way, if it was only that, then there really wouldn't be that much to it. You, you could essentially buy a Breaker's book or the giant books by Adrian Wilson, one of those classic tomes. And just imitate, right? And that's all you have to do. And if you do that, you know, that'll get you somewhere. I mean, it's better than a lot of things where people haven't even done the research, as it were. Well, it's often the printer, they leave it up yeah. to the printer to do it. You only get so far there. The other thing, I think, is just is to move beyond that and, and look for two things. One is if there's anything you can do in that home you're creating for the text that is so sympathetic that you can enhance or burnish or support the, the overall uh, the meaning or the tone or the mood or the sensibility. It, you know, it's a sympathetic home. It's not just a, a generic or neutral home, but one that is somehow sympathetic. I think that's really important. That, uh, in fact, gets back to your idea of the designer being bookish. Yeah. If they haven't read and comprehended the message of the book, then how can you interpret I, I, I it? You need to understand. Of course, one of the realities is that, you know, we all work in now. There's, there's no way that one can actually read everything you have to design. Mm -hmm. so, but you, know, you pick your spots. I mean, one of our rules is that there are books and there are books. And I mean, this, I mean, no disrespect to you know, certain kinds of books, but we all know that a, a book with a strict genre is easier from the point of view of presentation to understand. So, you know, we do books that I, that I would say range from sort of the high and the low, right? And we do hockey trivia books. Now, you know, again, there's a market for those, they're great fun for a lot of people, but they don't need a lot of in-depth sort of, you know, thought from a designer. You need to know it's a hockey trivia book. That's about all you need to know. Yeah. Very simple. <laughs> Certain kinds of um, books when you get into like how-to or business books or things like that, they can be encapsulated by an editor in a, in a short price yeah. and really that conveys everything the designer needs. It's when you get to things that are... Um, Imaginative. Yeah, or more, more literary, yeah. more challenging in, in the writing, you know, novel or more literary nonfiction. You know, you have to read read it. Ideally, all of it. Sometimes, you know, again, what happens because things happen so tightly. You know, you you don't get all of it at once. And and I would I would say that there have definitely been times where if I look at some of the particular fiction, where where we've had a little more of a struggle internally to come through that we think works. It's because the the text has been delayed and you've only got like a chapter or two, yeah, right? Yeah. And you do something, and, and the you know the initial feedback from the editor, who's often your first sort of point of contact, might be that oh, you know, it's attractive, but it's not quite right, and you're kind of scratching your head because it seems right for the you know 
the five thousand words you have, mm-hmm. which isn't the whole thing. So, you know, yeah, it's back to what you're, what you're saying. Really, it is that understanding, I think, and and that feeds into you know the other thing I think you're trying to do on top of that too, is just where, for lack of a better word, beauty comes in is is to try and just make the whole experience pleasurable. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I saw a, a presentation a couple of years ago at a Tech Rugby conference from from Microsoft of all things. We don't think of it associated with this, but they do have their kind of research lab and they've done certain web-based forms and things like that. And they're so, bringing uh, all sorts of typefaces into the, the general yeah. domain, aren't they? And they have, public. they have, you know, the money to go off and research these things which a lot of us don't understand. So he and his colleagues have done all these sort of studies on readability and they had taken a range of typefaces, some of the kind of the classic book faces, some things that were more, I guess we would think of as, as less... Um, Attractive, you know, some of the kinds of uh, more, I don't know, slab serif like, you know, more web based kind of faces, things a little ungainly, um, and some things that one would assume, faces like Futuro, which are very um, simplistic in the form, you know, it's a lovely typeface but hard to read, 5,000 words of it. So they've done different kinds of typefaces like that. They've done these studies and they were testing people's speed and comprehension and so on. And initially there were a few surprising things. I mean, the obviously less legible fonts obviously dropped away. But that some of the faces that were a little on the kind of uglier side, Verdana or something like that, I mean, it's, it's perfectly fine for reading on, on a web, but it's not really a, a beautiful typeface, um, had scored quite high, often as high or higher than something like Garamond, right? I mean, that. Uh, high in terms of readability? Yeah, in terms yeah. of how quickly people kind of finished and comprehended in general. Yeah. But then the extra thing they did at the end of it, which was quite interesting, is they also filmed everybody reading these passages. And they found consistently that. The more a typeface was something that people that an eye for type would consider beautiful and a kind of classic face, people's faces were quite different. They were mm-hmm. they looked like pleasure. They were smiling. So, do you have these little focus test no, ideas with two-way mirrors and things? I tend to, you know, rely on our own experience. And yeah. There's a quote I read recently by uh, Nick Shin, who's actually a Toronto-based type designer, and he said like a, a good designer needs uh, two things: good taste. And the ability to see which way the wind is blowing, essentially. And I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. What's going on around you, and to just inherently know what, what, what works, right? And that is sort of a lot of it is knowing what has worked classically, but also sort of knowing, you know, how you need to kind of keep on top of what is contemporary. I'm speaking with Peter Cocking, who is the arts director at Douglas and McIntyre Publishing House in Vancouver, BC. Perhaps we could change gears a bit by having a look at what the collector might go after. First of all, do you have any a rough idea of the total number of books you've produced so far? We must be looking at, like, let's see, we're talking 40 years. Maybe we're in, in the 2,500, 3,000 range, I would guess. We might be doing, like, in a season, four to six sort of larger format kind of illustrated books. Now, if you, if you think back on the output, any books that take your breath away? <laughs> in a way, I find that for a long time, in what we call the age of, I guess, phototype, really starting in the kind of late 60s, early 1970s, when printing moved away from certain metal typography, the quality in a lot of cases really drops. There aren't a lot of really beautiful books, even, even beautiful covers in the mass market sense in the sort of 70s, 80s, really. In the first half of the century, even a run-of-the-mill book is often 
quite nice to look at, right? And then good, good margins, nicely chosen type, and what is that? Although, from my limited exposure to the field, it seemed that there was a some sort of a, a renaissance mid fifties when the typographers mm. uh, oh, in, in Canada, yeah. The yeah. Canada Association yeah. set up and then Frank Newfeld yeah. and yeah. Alan Fleming and yeah. uh, some of these people. Yeah, yeah uh, they, that's true. They, back more back east there was some really some very interesting stuff. I think their style was more reflective of the classic, not not a, a William Morris ish arrival of Renaissance, but more that first half of the 20th century. When you think of that W. H. Biggins ish kind of American bookmaking that was at once fresh, yeah. but also respected the long tradition. And, you know, Which is what you were getting at a bit earlier. Yeah, and yeah. people like Adrian Wilson, who I really like too, an American term designer, that he was working right into the 60s and 70s, but taking, I guess, the private press movement into a broader domain. And I, I think. You know, those the people you mentioned, uh, Newfeld and Fleming and that, are, were kind of doing that in, in Canada. So it's yeah. true, you pick up like a Newfeld's, even just his paperbacks, they're nice, they're nicely done. They're really, nice. yeah. yeah. Very um, powerful and, and lots of bold color. Mm. But even the, even the text inside, is, it's considered, let's say, right? Even you've just got a simple rectangle, the, the you know, smart choices, nicely uh, arranged. That's true. So there, there was definitely that. There's a movement towards standardizing things in the 70s because the budgets were being cut. Yeah. And that's at 71 that you came into the company here, yeah. Then you may have been experiencing a bit of that. Sure. And, and for a long time they wouldn't have had, you know, except for the odd thing, the budget to really go beyond stuff that was fairly boilerplate, you know. Let's, if we were able to look at the output, you've mentioned the names of designers that collector could search and see if they like what came out under their names. But as far as any particular titles, titles I mean, probably the first one, this is just going from memory, that, that comes to mind for me as a watershed for DNM, moving the look of what the company did forward was um, a book Barbara Hutchin designed uh, with Robert Davidson, who made it artist's early um, retrospective of his work. And it was one of the first that this is sort of I remember seeing, wow. Sorry, that would have been when, mid-70s? No, it was a little bit later, probably yeah. the um, mid-80s, a little bit before that. The sort of first big book on Bill Reed, designed by a guy named Reinhard Dareth, who was uh, kind of an old-time associated with kind of graphic arts in a, a practical sense, too. He ran a little typesetting business and things like that here. But the tech director's club in New York gave him a medal. Those two are not too far apart. And that was probably around the beginning of here having a more bigger budget and sort of more aspirations to do those kind of books. Mm -hmm. yeah. And those two, I haven't looked at them for a while. They, they probably look, you know, a little a little dated now, but uh, but charming for that very reason. Yeah, yeah but even I think the the Davidson one. I think looking at them stronger a stronger book. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's sort of one of the, the the odd things in that it was actually when digital technology. In some ways, we think it's like antithetical to you know, books. Really, when that got on its feet more properly in the early '90s, that it actually led, I think, a lot to to great improvements in in design because it reduced the the time and money involved in doing things that now we see is just quite simple. Even just experimenting with, well, what if I try this type of thing? You know, we, we routinely will run a great number of kind of test galleys first to test you know, what the typeface and then the measure and the size and the lighting and you can run through a hundred of them and it doesn't really cost you anything a bit of time you know yeah. you pay it for yes. I mean, when I started doing this I kind of started when 
the Macintosh was very new and, and you know, there were some things you could do on it and you were still buying type the old way and it's a mix of the two. And you really had to make all your decisions early, which in the hands of those designers who had lots of experience and really knew what mm -hmm. they were doing, yeah. it wasn't such an issue. But there was just, it was much harder to experiment with and not with sort of, you know, kind of ridiculous sort of over-the-top digital effects, but just simply with those basic kinds of things of what is the best sort of type choice and line length and letting out all that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and the other thing for, for the Illustrate book is the, the reproduction quality is sort of exponentially better. I mean, they did a book last year called The Original Six, and the photographs of a guy named Harold Barkley, he's a hockey photograph, and he worked for the, uh, the old Toronto Star Weekly. And he was one of the first, I guess, down there, I level doing color photography with strobe lighting and so on, right, in the 60s. Uh, and there have been some collections of his stuff published before. But the photos are really, they, they really look grimy. You can't see through, through the dirt in these earlier collections. And so what we were able to do to make this interesting, even, you know, I came into the project thinking, okay, you know, it's fine, it's a hockey book, it's not going to be that interesting. And of course, once you could get to get in and work with these photographs, it became, quite an interesting thing because we were able to go in and basically take the grime off them, clean them up, so mm -hmm. they, you know, look... Take the grime off what? The uh, the original... Well, we did, yeah, you did it, but essentially because they were not properly oh. stored right. and kept, they had faded and sort of filled in, but underneath it all, first we started off with a really good sort of scan, and then if you know what you're doing and what the basic color should be. You can go in and, and we had some reference to, we had some old Toronto stars, so you get a sense of what his palette was like. Yeah. And you can go in and just, it's, you know, literally like cleaning an old painting, you can pull the crap off it, and these things come out the way they should. You know, I just used that book because it came to mind, but working with Fred Herzog. Who, yeah, I just got the book, yeah. and I got a signed copy of it. And that's sort of the same thing, and he already, you know, when I've worked on two books with Fred, and he already has quite good master scans, he has people that he works with, who you know do a lot of working with him to bring back you know the colors the way that I mean, the Kodachrome's and he obviously he he's the one to, to talk yeah, to yes. but even doing the, the books and then we get to the next level that kind of, he he'll come in and sit you know for hours at a time going through these and because there is a difference between you know his sort of raw scan or an average improved scan I guess we should say is optimized for you know the limited prints that uh, they just get it's a different way of printing than on a printing press. It's actually in jet, and so but there's still those things are selling for twenty five hundred. Yeah, well, there's more, more than that. Yeah, we did a limited run, okay. and that's it. They'll never be reprinted again. So from from the standpoint of the collector, what's, what's odd in a book lover, what you're telling me is the amount of time that he spent with the images that appear in that book. You only have to spend sixty. Uh, sixty-five dollars to get a yeah. beautiful book with images that he's actually spent a lot of time oh, with. Yeah. I can think of single images in that book where he sat at my shoulder for a day, just yeah. for one minute. Yeah, and so certainly those things, for a, a point of view of you know, if you're a, a collector, you know, you get so much in in, in that in those books for so little. But yeah, yeah. Exactly. But that's where actually you know the the technology which. You know, in some ways, may threaten sort of what we do, but it also has made it easier to really uh, produce some of these kinds of things. So, you know, we, we either couldn't produce before, or the costs were were exponential. I mean, here it's still cost, it's labor, but there isn't anywhere near you know the the cost of when you had to do this without uh, this technology, the sort of old way of sort of reproducing yeah. photographs. You just didn't have that kind of control.
I ask you to uh, to go back a bit then in your career with the company, and I know your name is frequently on the Alcune, you're on the podium there, and tell us uh, about some of those, some titles perhaps that, uh, again, you're most proud of having produced. I was always more enthused in some ways by the book that either has just come out or, or that hasn't quite. I mean, the funny thing is the very first book that I won an award for is not one I would normally single out. The kids' book on hockey for Greystone. We sold 40,000 copies of that book and, it's, and, and then we sold it in, in French and Swedish and Finnish and in Czech. All the, all the hockey and, countries, yeah. yeah. And it spawned a huge series. I think there was eight of them. It's called How to Play at the Pros. You were working with an illustrator? Or no, you? I worked with... <laughs> there was a photographer, myself, the author and uh, a coach, a guy named Paul Carson, became also a co-author and now runs Hockey Canada's youth programs in Calgary. So there was the four of us and some young local kids, like 12, 15. We spent a week on an ice rink with big lights and everything like that and had them coach through all these different things. How to do this, how to do that. It was photographed. Almost like a comic book. And it was a real design challenge. I had to go through you know, thousands and thousands of photographs, put them into, into steps with, with the author and the coach. Yeah. And then everything was written, more or less he'd only roughed it out. It was designed and then written fit. And then intermingled with were photographs of professional hockey players with the author, because Sean Oster, a long-time sports writer, he had a lot of context. He went and got these guys to yeah, he'd give him quotes. So, you know, he would go, we had a program with Jerry, Jerry Ronick, taking a wrist shot, he goes, you know, gets a hold of him and asks him. How did you do that? Yeah, they were actually willing to talk to him. He'd been doing this long enough, he had a good reputation. So that, I think just because for the kind of book it was, it was quite innovative at the time. Did you say, complex and... Very uh, complicated yeah, to do, yeah. yeah. That was the very first thing. So you were rewarded for solving that problem. Yeah, yeah. Another early book I won an award for that, that I still think is quite good might have been the first sort of real serious gallery-led book I did, a book called Canvas of War. There's a lot of great work in there, and that's an interesting book for the Canadian War Museum, sort of their collection of great Canadian War. The interesting story in that book, actually, is that the first printing, there were a lot of color issues, and it turned out that, essentially with the museum, that they were in the process of restoring and cleaning a lot of these things, and they had scanned the images, um, or photographed them, rather, sent them to us, and we had them scanned, only to find, literally, that as they found, and they should have done it beforehand. We had gone to level printing it, and they had signed up and everything, and they were cleaning these things. They go, well, the color's now wrong. Now we've cleaned them. Uh, a lot of them, the color is quite different, right? Than from the, uh, re the, uh, the actual yeah, painting. Yeah. yeah. So because this is going to be a big touring show, and that they basically insisted we pulled the books and pull them. So as far as I know, most everything was pulled. But there may be a few. I don't know if they've been widely distributed yet. They might have just been in some gallery stores if they had yeah. like a wide or something like that. But they definitely had shipped and were recalled. That's um, a good story. Yeah, now, would you have would you have had a full number line on the uh, title page, I and you would have pulled the book? I don't one? think we even did that. I think that's the thing. The only thing okay. I think I still have a copy. So um, how would you tell? Just it's greener. The front cover of the okay. image has got a real, and you wouldn't notice it if you knew nothing about the book. You think this is the way the art looks. Yeah. So when you put the two of them together, 
the, the original one, I remember the very front cover image and the back too, actually, they have a greener cast. Okay. It's a phantom edition. <laughs> the, um, the cookbook thing is kind of interesting. I've done a lot of cookbooks and some of them have done, you know, sort of pretty well in terms of awards and so on. Probably still the most interesting one in, in some ways is the first um, that I was involved with in our attempt to do a really elaborate sort of coffee table, you know, the, the, the tournament throwing food porn, right? The audience may know the, the chef, Rob Feeney's. Uh, so here he's pretty young. He shows up on national television and in the Global Mail and so on. And, you know, for a long time he had a series of restaurants. So he started with one called Lumiere, which was the first restaurant in Canada to receive his designation and so on. Okay. So he was kind of a you know, highfalutin sort of star in the late 90s. So we did this book with him, but this first one was very elaborate large format, tall, sort of slimmer, hardcover, with a, a vellum dust jacket. Again, this was done before, just before I came in, house, actually about a year before. The cover itself has no type on it, the case, except a little Dunson and Harry spine. You take the dust jacket off, and it's just imagery, right? And then there's this vellum dust jacket, which has the type, either black type or some white foil, so screen. But if you lose the dust jacket, there's no title on the book. It's completely... <laughs> people, they, I know they goes, well, what happened to they lose it? And my response was, well, at that point they bought it, so who cares? I know some people, you know, were, it was still kind of, you know, on the, the death track treatment, and when we reprinted it, you know, we went to a more standard treatment. I still think it holds up. I think it's quite interesting. And, and the interior, I think, is some lovely photography. It's just an interesting sort of treatment. That's still one of my, one of my favorites uh, of the cookbooks. One for uh, Chipinos, too, which is another local sort of high-end restaurant is one I'm, I'm particularly happy with, sort of more the typography. It's quite uh, elaborate. Is there one that you're most proud of? One of my favorite books that I've done is a book uh, called Raven Traveling, which is a large format, illustrated book about high art. My attempt there was trying to do something that has a real kind of organic sort of feeling to it, and it looks like there's almost no up really obvious apparent grid structure, like there's a lot of motion and movement. There's a structure there, but is trying to make it very kind of organic and uh, flowing and sort of move away from a kind of a, a hard modern or geometric look which mm. seems appropriate to the, to the work itself. Right. So that, yeah, that is probably one of my sort of all-time favorites. Sorry, what was that one called? It's called Raven Traveling. Another book which is just back over here on the shelves is that Visions of British Columbia. I was quite happy with the design of the book. It's an interesting case of sort of trying to create a picture in a way of the culture of this place by combining text and art. Local authors, poets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and, and they're paired. The idea is to try and pair them. Type picking up on various uh, colors and things like that in the paintings. But often, when we're doing art-related books, you, you tend to go for a very um, transparent sort of look to not compete with the art. But here, because there was so much sort of variety to it, it's a chance to be a little more kind of playful, which was which is kind of fun. Just you know, I felt like I was sort of more more involved in the whole process. I mean, a lot of the books that I actually find are, are my own personal favorites are not always even uh, illustrated books, but they're uh, uh, a lot of the novels, just because, you know, from a designer's point of view, a novel is such a challenge, you know, like to try and kind of come up with something on, a, on the cover, um, particularly, you know, and, and sometimes the interior, but certainly the cover that, that conveys that sensibility without doing something too literal, you know. But the job of the reader to yeah. do that, isn't it? And Jessica is particularly good at that, too. She's done some excellent, excellent fiction work of trying to kind of pull uh, a sense of the, the text sort of out. She did um, 
book called Daniel Thunder, which is just an excellent sort of Dickensian kind of book. When I designed this, the whole thing was to try and, and keep this whiff of Victorian up all the way sort of through it. So the inside, like all the typography is from that era and a lot of things that, you know, the general reader is not really going to know. Puts them in that time period. Yeah. There's a couple of books that just, recent books that, that um, have come out that I think are kind of interesting that are probably under the radar. In terms of what? Well, in terms of not, the, probably not a lot of people will see them. In, sometimes we'll do books where there's a partnership involved, right? Like there's a, whether it's a gallery or something, or something or an organization, there's a sponsorship. And so not a lot of the books go into the, the, the trade. So you don't necessarily see Jess did this one book called Undesirables, which is has been out for a couple of months. Um, by a guy named uh, Ali Kazimi, and it's about the, the Komagata Maru, uh, which is a um, dark sort of period in Indian history when this ship full of uh, migrants from India showed up and they were refugees and just turned away. Right? Canada has a history. Yeah, they do. And, but what's interesting about the book is the raw material looked, looked like it just was very, you know, seemed kind of dry and, you know, how are we going to make something visual out of this? But what she did with it is, is really amazing. It's really rich, sort of lovely, kind of well thought out um, book and, and you look at it and you get this whole sense of the, the kind of texture of the, the time and period in that. And so that one, I think that one's quite notable. And another one that she also did just recently for the Museum of Anthropology uh, here, well, we've done a few things for them and again, a lot of times those really are mostly sold through the museum themselves. I did a an overview of their collection a few years ago. Another native artist, Doug Cranmer, the book is called Casey. Didn't necessarily have good photography or any of these things, yet the result is really surprising and uh, really so exciting to look at. I mean, that's almost a throwback to kind of our earlier days of trying to make sort of something out of, out of nothing. I think often when there are these partnerships and you just don't get what you expect. Final question, uh, your hero. Who is it? Kind of comes and goes. I mean, I do. I, I really like William Addison's Vance, I've mentioned before, American type designer, book designer for the 20th century. Dwiggins? Yeah. It's pronounced. Dwiggins, yeah. I worked with Knopf. Knopf, yeah. yeah. Knopf and Dwiggins. Yeah. Constant. I interviewed Richard Orm, who's a, an expert on Knopf, and one of the things that he loved about Dwiggins was that exactly what you're talking about. He was very conscious of the budgets that they yeah, had. Yes, yeah. And so that played a, a role in what he did. But, sorry. I, I do like a lot of stuff that is uh, essentially anonymous. What I teach primarily is typography. <laughs> I had this conversation once with Christian Elstead because he shares my interest in Victorian typography, which, you know, Robert Brinkhurst, of course, is just like dismissive. But <laughs> I can't. Much of the, the attempts at anything sort of fine in that period very much fall flat. But what's interesting is what's happening on the margins, is the, the whole development of what is now display typography, the wood type, the, the kind of, um, you know, just liveliness of expression that, that had never happened in type ever before, right? When was this thing? This was prior like, to Morris? Or? Yeah, well, yeah, looking at the 1820s sort of on. Okay, because yeah, you Morris is almost a reaction against that. He's like, let's, let's get rid of the, this kind of commercial kind of crap, right? Which, because it was about advertising. That time. Yeah. And let's go back to you know the standards of sort of classic early early Renaissance sort of bookmaking, uh, and it was a necessary reaction. But the, the the early days of that sort of Victorian type, there's just the panoply of options that were suddenly available to people, and what they did with it. You know, even when it's horrible, it's, it's just really interesting, right? And it's, a, it's a very rich. Um, and even the first half of the the 20th century, that um, a lot of the more 
anonymous designs and a lot of what, what I do is, is very influenced by mid-century modernism, particularly sort of American and British, and not just the high end, but, you know, I mean Paul Rand and Alvin Lustig and people like that. Yeah. I, I love that sort of work. But also just the ephemeral stuff there, too, you know, that uh, all the advertising, comic books, pulp magazines, all that sort of stuff. It's also just to me really, really interesting. And I mean, right now, it's sort of sad. There aren't as many, I guess, what I think of as really complete book designers as there used to be because it's so compartmentalized. You know, you've got someone doing the interior, and, and it's just kind of factory made, and then you're able to make some covers. Like, Knopf in the U.S., the interiors aren't what they once were, but they still continue to produce some unbelievably good cover designs. Peter Mendelssohn and Gabriel Wilson, some of those people, I think, are just, you know, unbelievably thoughtful designers, and it would only be better if they, as a house, if they put that into the interior, too, you know, that mm -hmm. we... You know, because that probably one of our, our strengths here is that if something in the book is important, we try to keep that continuity all the way through it and, and value the interior. Well, thanks very much for uh, giving us your take on, on the company. Peter Cocking is the art director at Douglas and McIntyre Publishing House in Vancouver, BC. Thanks again. Thank you.